0: if you have been going to church for very long you know that, that there's kind of a rhythm there's kind of a flow to church services and that's certainly true here at bay area um, there's a rhythm there's a flow here you know almost every week in fact, no I think I'll say every week every Sunday someone gets up and welcomes you welcomes you to church welcomes you to services and almost every Sunday you are asked to take a card and fill it out. Take one of those connection cards. Now, if you've been going here a real long time, maybe you do that. Maybe you don't. If you're like me, maybe you fill your name and the date in, but don't pay too much attention to the rest of the card. You ever taken a look at those cards though? There's actually on the back. There's seven different options that you can choose. Seven different boxes that you can fill in if you if you'd like to. One of those boxes says Church Orientation Class. Have you ever noticed that? There's a box on the back of a connection card that says Church Orientation Class. Do you ever wonder what that's about? I'm not sure. But I do know this. The idea is if someone wants to know more about church, someone wants to know more about what's going on here, then they check that box. Now, I see most of the cards. Not too many times is that box checked. But I will guarantee that everybody that comes in this building for the first time, for the second time, for the third time, they're trying to find out what's the church about here, what's the deal with you guys, well, what goes on here, you know, what happens here. They're trying to get a feel for us. They're trying to get a feel for the rhythm, the flow, and kind of what we're all about. And it got me thinking of if someone were to ask you the question. You no, know, what's your church like? What's the church where you attend? What's it like? Explain that to me. How would you answer that question? What's the church where you attend? What's it like? Would you say, well, there's restrooms on both corners here, and there's a there's a nursery here by the front door, which is important information, but is that where you'd start? Would you say, um, well, we have some great programs. We got a great children's ministry and a really great uh, youth ministry. Is that where you'd start? What's the church where you attend like? It's really friendly. You know, diverse, just, you know, kind of representation of, you know, the of our of our community. Is that where you'd start? Well, we we share the Lord's Supper every Sunday. We don't use instruments, you know, in our worship service. Is that where you'd start? If someone were to ask you, tell me about your church. What's the deal with you guys? How would you answer that? Where would you start? You know, the old saying keep the main thing the main thing. This morning I want to talk a little bit about the main thing. And we're going to go to a scripture to do that. You know, The, the purpose. What's the main thing? Because if somehow we miss the main thing, If somehow we miss the purpose, then all the programs, all the classes, all the friendliness, all the diversity, all the restrooms, don't mean a thing. If somehow we miss the main thing, if somehow we miss our purpose as a church, then we have failed as a church. And here's the deal about the main thing. We don't get to pick what it is. We don't get to choose what the main thing is. We don't even get a vote in that. It's not up to us to decide what the main thing is. God decides what the main thing is. He chooses what's most important. About 2,000 years ago, history tells us that there was a man who wasn't real impressive in stature. He was kicked around quite a bit, uh, had problems with the law, um, was in jail, part of his life, even in chains. He had some health issues, highly educated, but he sort of left the academic life, went into ministry, became a missionary, a teacher, a preacher, an apostle. His name was Paul. Toward the end of Paul's life, he wrote a letter to a group that lived in and around the area of Colossae. We know it is the book of Colossians. And in the first part of that book, Paul spells out, I think, what is a pretty good mission, a pretty good purpose, a pretty main thing for not just church, but for Christians as well. So this morning we're going to spend some time talking about the main thing. It's in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, and there's a lot in these two verses. Here's what Paul writes. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. We proclaim him. If that verse isn't underlined in your Bible, you ought to underline it. If you're a person that writes in your Bible, now you ought to put a star by that verse. In fact, if you're a person who doesn't write in your Bible, that would be a good verse to begin with. It'd be a good verse to underline. We proclaim him we don't proclaim our wisdom and we don't proclaim some 12-step you know self-help program we don't proclaim our classes and our programs we don't proclaim a political agenda we don't proclaim a superiority over the unchurched or the other churched. we proclaim him we proclaim Christ we proclaim Christ because he's the light of the world we proclaim Christ because he's the creator and sustainer of the universe. We proclaim Christ because he's the head of the church. He is, he is the light of the world. He's taken care of darkness. He died and was crucified on a cross, rose three days later. We proclaim Jesus. We proclaim Christ because Christ is Lord. See, here's what you need to know about this church. If you're, if you're a guest today, you know, if you haven't been here very many times, what's the deal with these people? You know, what, what's most important? Here's what's most important. We are staking our lives. We are betting the farm. We are going all in on the crucified carpenter from Nazareth. We proclaim Christ. That's why we call ourselves a church of Christ. I'm proud of the church and I'm proud of that name. We proclaim him. That's what we do. We proclaim Christ. Well, who do we proclaim Christ to? Well, Paul's pretty clear on that, actually. Paul says we proclaim him to everyone. Paul doesn't say we proclaim him to people who look and think and act just like us. And Paul doesn't say we proclaim Christ to people who kind of deserve to hear. He doesn't say we proclaim Christ to people who have been found worthy to listen to the message. Paul says we proclaim Christ to everyone. Well, are you more focused on people outside the church or inside the church? Do you have an outward focus or an inward focus? You get that question. It's a fair question. I usually answer that question with a question of my own. Who did Jesus love more? People outside the church or people inside the church. Because I think sometimes we divide people in ways that Jesus never divided people. We proclaim Christ to people who don't know him because Jesus will change their lives. And we proclaim Christ to people who do know him because Jesus will change their lives. We proclaim Christ to everyone sociologist by the name of Christian Smith has done a tremendous amount of research and and written a lot about uh, emerging adulthood Millennials that kind of uh, demographic young young adults young Americans and kind of where they're headed and trends and those kinds of things specifically you know in the area of theologically uh, speaking and he claims that today more and more people claim to be spiritual than ever before especially young people it's really important young people that there is a spirituality about them they want to be spiritual but at the same time his research shows that more and more young people especially don't want very much to do with religion he talks about the fact that they, they, they desperately want a spirituality about them but not religion and how widespread that mindset is how difficult it is to kind of put your finger on and even harder to explain to someone. But he explains it this way. There is a very strong belief that there is a God and that God is in control. Now, who exactly that God is and what he does, that's kind of hazy, a little bit fuzzy. That's open to personal interpretation. There is a God and that God wants people to be good and kind and moral but the definition of goodness or morality mm, kinda hazy that's sort of open to personal interpretation everybody wants to be happy everybody wants to be fulfilled human happiness mm, that's sort of fuzzy you know open to personal interpretation and most people really don't want God really involved in their life. You know, most people want to do their own thing, live their own life, but they really like having God on call. You know, if, it, if an emergency arises, you know, a car accident or someone I love gets sick or, you know, some relationship problem, God, I'd like you to you know help me out then, but but as far as being involved in my life, mm, I think I'm okay for now. Some of you parents might be familiar with the parenting book. If you don't know the book, you probably know the, the title to the book, Get Out of My Life, but first could you drive me and Cheryl to the mall? You know, that's how a lot of people kind of look at their spiritual life. Hey, God, leave me alone. I am gonna live my own life, but I need a favor first. Hey, I'm doing my own thing, but I could use you, you know, some help when I need it. It's a popular view of Christianity. That is not God's view of Christianity. And the thing that's sobering is the fact that if we're not paying attention, it is really easy to kind of fall back into that, get lulled into that sense of, you know what, I don't really need God in my life. That same kind of mindset. But again, that's not following God and that's not following Jesus. So Paul says, we proclaim him. We proclaim Christ, teaching everyone and admonishing everyone with all wisdom. That's what we do. Well, how do we do it? We teach and we admonish what Jesus did by the way mark chapter 6 when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd so he began teaching them many things Jesus taught people that's why they called him teacher he taught people in fact the very last thing he, he told his disciples before he ascended back to heaven was to teach people we call it the Great Commission therefore go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you Jesus said I want you to teach people that's what he did that's what Paul did Acts chapter 18 one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision do not be afraid keep on speaking not be silent from with you. No one's going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. How do we proclaim Christ? By teaching. We also proclaim Christ by admonishing. Get the Bible word. We're not quite as familiar or comfortable with that word. It's a little bit tougher. Maybe you have a translation that says rebuking, but that's a Bible word too. Maybe you have a translation that says warn. Okay, we get that. I know what it means to warn people. So we proclaim Christ by warning, but what do we what do we warn people about? Now let's go back to scripture. First Thessalonians chapter 5, we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle. Encourage the timid. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Paul says if you're timid, you need to be encouraged. If you're weak, you need to be helped. But if you're idle, if you're just sort of stuck in neutral spiritually, if you're just sort of phoning it in, you need to be warned. You need to be warned about that. Titus chapter 3, verse 9. Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because they're unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You want to major in minors? to keep arguing about questions that no one's asking and things that don't really matter Paul says you need to be warned about that Paul would say knock it off cut it out in fact Paul would say if you don't knock it off I'm not gonna have anything to do with you what else did Paul warn people about lots of things Uh, Galatians chapter 5, we talked at length about this in our Wednesday night class a couple weeks ago. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, this isn't the first time I've warned you about this, I warned you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's a pretty long list of warnings. Paul is warning us about sin, admonishing us that if we are a slave to that sinful nature, we will not inherit the kingdom. That is strong, strong language. But again, that's exactly what Paul's saying back in Colossians. What do we do? we proclaim Christ who do we proclaim Christ to everyone how do we do that we teach we warn why what's the purpose what's the reason for that we proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ to this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. What's the goal? What's the reason? To present everyone perfect in Christ, so that everyone can be mature, complete, whole, living the life that God intended us to live, flourishing like God intended us to flourish. So that everyone would love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. So that everyone would love their neighbors themselves. So that families would be strengthened. So that relationships would be formed and focused in the context of Jesus Christ as King. So that the power of sin no longer has a grip on us. So that ordinary people like you and me, people who certainly wouldn't classify ourselves as spiritual giants, Just the ordinary blue-collar, white-collar working folks, single moms, butchers and bakers and candlestick makers. So we all can be presented perfect in Christ. That's why Paul labored. That's why Paul struggled. That's why Paul went without food and water and sleep. That's why Paul was shipwrecked. That's why Paul was beaten. That's why Paul was in prison. That's why Paul said he was living in constant danger. So that he could present everyone perfect in Christ. What's the purpose behind everything we do? Our aim is to proclaim, to proclaim Jesus, to present everyone perfect in Christ. What are you, what are you people at Bay Area all about? What's a deal with you? I mean, what's what's important to you? Jesus Christ. We are all about Jesus Christ. We proclaim Christ. Now, before I sit down, let me talk to those of you who have been around for quite a while, those of you who uh, are used to being here. If you're a guest of ours, you get a little bit of a pass on this, but but I want to talk to those of us who are kind of regulars, and I'm going to warn you up front, it's a little bit of an admonishment, and I want to use an example to, to make my point. Most of you, I'm sure, have either seen or you're familiar with the television show The Biggest Loser. I'm not even sure it's still on TV, but if you take the if you take the TV drama out of it, it's really an inspiring show. It follows a group of men and women who are overweight and going through this really intensive weight loss program. And We watch them week after week as they change their lifestyle, as they change their activity level, as they change their eating habits, as they change their focus, just changing everything about their life. And week after week, you watch as they start losing really significant amounts of weight. I said it's very inspiring. And in true reality show fashion, every week, someone is voted off and they do an exit interview with the person who's been voted off, and they talk about their journey and their struggles and their victories. And one of the things that the person who is leaving the show always says, kind of a tagline, America, the next time you see me, and then they talk about, you know, what to expect. And the details are always a little bit different with their message, but the message itself is always the same. America, the next time you see me, I will be different. And of course, the big finale is the big thing at the end where they bring all the people who were voted off back on the show and the families there, and of course, all of America is watching to see you know, what they look like now. And they show this before picture of this gentleman or this lady, you know, with their heaviest. And then the host says, Let's bring out the brand new John. This guy comes, well, let's bring out the brand new Stephanie. And this girl comes walking out. And more times than not, the change is jaw-dropping. You know, like nine or ten months have gone by now. And out walks this very fit, you know, athletic-looking person. And they're standing beside the picture of themselves at the heaviest. And it's like, wow, that doesn't even look like the same person. Now, you probably know where I'm going with this. I have been told that there are tens of thousands of people who try to get on that show every season. Why? Because they've seen the show before. And because they are convinced, if I can get on that show, that could be me. If I had that kind of help, and if I had that kind of um, uh, encouragement, if I had that system behind me, that could be me. I could change. I, I could be different. I could be you know, thinner. I could experience that same kind of transformation. And they fully expect that. After nine months, they, they fully expect to be different. You know, America, the next time you see me, I'm going to be running a marathon. And they are. They couldn't go up a flight of stairs when the thing started. Now they're running a marathon. It is God's design. It is God's desire. It is Christians. We change. It is Christians. We grow. That we mature. We all know Romans chapter twelve. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Today begins a brand new year. Question. How much have you transformed spiritually since January 1st, 2016? How much have you changed? Maybe the better question is, did you expect to change in 2016? Did you expect there to be spiritual growth? in your life did you expect there to be transformation in your life what do you expect new year's day 2018 to look like do you expect to grow this year spiritually do you expect to mature this year spiritually you know if you